Welcome to the Real Life Theology Podcast. We're so glad you've decided to join us again today. In this episode, Jeff Dooler teaches on inner healing. Jeff dives deep into his own life journey of deep pain, healing, and redemption. He acknowledges the spiritual warfare that the devil throws and wages against God's people. Jeff shares tools for psychological spiritual healing that he has learned in his own life and ministry. Let's go ahead and check out this content today. So Jesus, we love you. Oh, we're so grateful for what you've done. Oh, we'd be so lost without you. Thank you that this is just the beginning. There's so much more. The glory that awaits makes this world and all its brokenness and suffering someday going to seem like a light in momentary trouble. That doesn't seem possible when the weight of, uh, and, the, and the pressure and the strain and the, and the uh, angst of it all is so intense. And yet, your light shines, Jesus. Thank you for what you've started You will carry it to completion. You're the author and the perfecter, not only of our faith, but our wholeness. And so, Jesus, we welcome you into our lives. We welcome you to do your work in us, to glorify your holy name by showing your great healing power. And even now, Lord, in this small little little moment where we pause this group of people, never again we'll be in this room uh, together. We are here for a unique moment. We want to hear what you have to say. We want to avail ourselves of what you want to do. We want to be not only made whole, but we want to become healing agents in our broken world. And so thank you in advance, God. We just choose to exercise the muscle of faith to believe it will be. We don't wait for the feeling. We choose even now to believe we are being healed. We have been healed. We will be healed. By your wounds, Jesus, we thank you. Amen. 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 Thank you, guys. Okay, so um, I want you to picture 16-year-old Jeff. I came home from school on the bus. I got off, went in, tossed my bag on my bed, buried my face in my pillow. And as a 16-year-old boy could, could do, I just kind of yelled and cried I put it down and I got out my Boy Scout knife and I notched the next notch of my thumb. I went to the basement where I had my pipe bomb that I was pouring the gunpowder in and ready to wax the threads and drill through to blow something up. I had all this rage. I didn't know what to do with it. I didn't know where it came from. I grew up in a safe, suburban, middle-class family in a good community. My parents loved the Lord. Nuclear family, loving parents. And so when I came to know Jesus, not too long after that, in a a radical kind of encounter, when I say know Jesus, I had made a commitment to him, but I came to know him through the discipling of a youth pastor. Um, My my life was pretty radically converted. I was pretty radically changed. It got people's attention. Um, You know, our, our parents, we had a family boat. It said attitude adjustment on the back. And my friends would say, yeah, you're the one who got the attitude adjustment. They prevented me from entering the National Honor Society, not because of my grades as a smart kid, but because of my attitude. It changed. The school took notice. Um, And then in that, I felt the Lord calling me into vocational ministry. I went off to Bible college, just growing like a weed. And yet there were these moments. My buddy Matt Lewis walking to chapel, just kind of nudged, just just reached over and put me in a headlock and gave me a noogie. There was something still raging inside me, even though... I had surrendered to Jesus. I was walking with Jesus. I'm training to be a youth pastor. 
Well, in those, in those Bible college years, I grew a ton. Unfortunately, slowly became a little more of a cognitive behavioral Christian. Missed out on the spiritual realm and the reality of the presence of God in my life. Went on from there to seminary. And there in seminary, I was reacquainted with the goodness of God and the manifestation of God through his wonderful Holy Spirit. One of our classes had to do with counseling, and we were introduced to something called theophostic counseling. And basically, theo, God, phos, light, God, light, counseling. And the basic premise is very big simplification is you take a person in their woundedness back to the place of the wound, and there you identify the lie that the devil, the enemy, the accuser has been attacking them with, And then you bring the light of Jesus, the truth of Jesus to bear on it. And I think he said something like this, didn't he? That the truth will set you free. And so that people in that experience, and then even to visualize where is Jesus with you in that moment. So that was basically the the premise. I went home and I said to my buddy Shane, who was in the class with me, I think I need this. It's not just other people need it, I think I need this. And so we said, what do you want to pray for? I said, you know, every time I talk to my dad on the phone, my dad's a loving, gracious guy, but I feel that anger and rage stir up in me again. I don't know why. He just, I just feel frustrated at him. And so uh, we said, let's pray about it. And we said, Lord, will you take Jeff back to where this came from? And just waited. And this isn't a trying to come up with something, but the basic premise is see what God might bring to mind. And I actually had a memory of me walking down the steps, 16-year-old Jeff with the scars on his thumb, the pipe bomb in the basement. And my dad was at the bottom of the steps. I was going to use his car to go somewhere. And he was rightly going to ask me, where was I going? And in my mind, I'm picturing strangling him and killing him and leaving him and stepping over his body to get in the car to go do what I wanted to do. And so in that moment, it just became clear to me there was some demonic involvement in this. And so we, we dealt with that. I don't have time to get into how we dealt with that, but we dealt with that. And we said, Lord, is there anything else? Then I saw myself as like a seven-year-old kid in the car, in the city. It's a red station wagon. It's in the middle of the summer. It's hot. We're trying to, my dad's taken us on a vacation. We're trying to find the zoo, but we're lost. And we're, cars are honking at us. And they're fumbling, my mom and dad fumbling with the maps. And I'm in the back. And, um, and just in that moment, we said, Lord, what is the lie? What is the truth? What do you want to say? Basically, these kinds of things. And the thought in my head was, your father is a broken man. And then immediately was connected with his service in Vietnam. And immediately I had compassion pour into my heart. I had never thought of my dad as a broken man. Um, but I just, I could almost like in a movie scene, like hear the bombs and the bullets and the explosions and the smoke. My dad was a physical therapist serving people in Japan who came out of Vietnam. And so in that moment, um, I just had a powerful flood of compassion for my dad. And I got to tell you guys, I have never been frustrated at my dad since. Has he done plenty of things to make me frustrated? Yeah. But it didn't spark up. It didn't stir up in me. And so I said to Shane, man, I, th- I, wanna, I think I need this. 9-11 happened. I watched the smoke rise from the World Trade Center. I was in seminary in New York City. And uh, I said, I need this for fear. I live in a lot of fear. I feel like I'm just walking with a sense of dread, fear of man, fear of the future, fear of what's going to happen. So we gathered together again, and we said, Lord, where's this fear coming from? And I had this memory come to mind, this thing just come to my mind of, and this is going to sound crazy, but it was like 
boys swallowing light bulbs in an occult ceremony with torches. And I was like, I don't know what to make of this. But I just reported to the people that were there praying. And I said, we said, Lord, what do you want to say? What do you want to do? And I'm a very visual person. I'm an imaginative, creative person. And so in my mind, all of a sudden, I saw a beating heart outside a body. I saw a sword come down and, and sort of cut into the heart. But it was almost like there was a cancerous tumor that shriveled up. And the heart then began to grow. Now, in this prayer, we're also walking through and claiming truths of Scripture about Christ. Uh, But I got to tell you, the very next day, my wife and I, who had no intentions of having children, we had been married four years, three years at this time, all day long had this overpowering desire to have a family. And I was a little nervous because we had kind of made an agreement. We didn't think maybe kids were for us. We felt embarrassed and shamed about it, but we just didn't have a desire for kids. Everyone tried to tell us we were supposed to want to have kids. We didn't want to have kids. We didn't know why. Uh, But I came home and said, Julie, I need to talk with you about something. And she said, well, I need to talk with you about something. I said, I don't know how to explain this, but since our prayer time last night, I just, and we both said at this time, we want to have kids. We're like, what? It was almost as if there was like this fear in my life that was like, blocking the space that a desire for kids would, would come. And, and, and our beautiful daughter, our first child, Kayla, was conceived not too long after that. And so th- I'm like, there's something to this, the healing, delivering, freeing power of Jesus. And so we just started practicing this more in prayer. I remember I was met with a couple, the husband and the wife wanted to get a divorce. Well, she wanted to get a divorce. Her words were, my heart is dead. Um, it's over. And I said, look, I'm not a trained counselor. I can't help you with that, but I know someone who can heal your dead heart. And so I said, would you like to schedule a prayer time? And so we scheduled a theophostic prayer time. And basically we said, Lord, where did this come from? And she said, I remember sitting at the window watching for the headlights of my newly, uh, my new husband to come home. He didn't tell me he was an addict when we got married. And so I found out shortly after and I said, what is the lie you're believing? What is the, you know, Lord, would you reveal what the lie is? And she's just sitting there and her eyes are closed. My eyes are open. I'm looking at her. And she just begins to um, furrow her brow a little bit. I just say, what is it? And she says, he doesn't love me. And then she says, but that's not a lie. And I said, what's the lie buried inside that truth? Because he didn't love her. He wasn't loving her. Does that make sense? It made sense to me. I said, what's the lie inside the truth? You know, the devil's crafty. Oh, man, he loves to twist and manipulate. We don't just fight him with the word of God. We fight him with the truth of the word of God. Many times scripture can be manipulated. And so anyways, all of a sudden tears, I just see them dropping on her on her knees or whatever. And she's beginning to cry. And I said, what's he saying? And she said, he said, I love you. I could have told her Jesus loves you. She could have said Jesus loves me. But in that moment, in the midst of her pain, the identification of the lie, she heard the truth, and they're married to this day. And their marriage is alive because of what Jesus did. So I'm like, all right, we got to, this is a big deal. And so this became sort of our life, part of our life and our ministry. And um, I didn't mention one other thing. When I was praying for my father, I was forgiving him for wrongs he had done. But I also asked the Lord to, um, I'm actually transfusing two different, two different occasions of prayer. Where's my anger coming from? 
And I was uh, about nine-year-old kid at the mall, went into the bathroom. My buddy's friend is beside me. He looks over and he says, you got squirrel nuts. Do you know what that does to a little boy? First of all, all boys have squirrel nuts. Come on. (laughs) But do you know what that does to a boy in your psyche? Now, someone might say, ah, sticks and stones might break my bones, but words don't hurt me. No, that's a wound in this little boy's heart. I'm picturing myself at 14 years old playing uh, going to the mall to a video arcade, a bully came up, spit in my face, and punched me. And what did I do? I walked off. You know what that did? That created a wound in me. Yes. Sitting in my study hall and the senior girl going around pointing to each person and saying, you remind me of a golden retriever. You remind me, that's like a horse. Uh, that's like a cheetah. That's like a deer. And I'm just waiting. I'm the last one. And they get back to me and they say, wait for it, ferret. I don't want to be called a ferret. Now, ferrets are actually really industrious creatures. I've come to learn of all the merits of ferrets. But as a 16-year-old kid, I didn't want to be called no ferret. It was another wound. So as I'm finding the roots of my rage, I'm uncovering everyday stuff that hurt. And you know what? Rats feed on garbage. The devil latches on to the wounds. In the vulnerable places of our hearts, especially when we're young or in vulnerable places in our lives. That's one of the other principles of Theophostic. If you heal, if you get rid of the garbage, it's easier to get rid of the rats. Deal with the wound, it's easier to deal with the demons. And so um, I'm going to fast forward a little bit. Um, This is cool. This is funny. This is the Lord, I think. All of my notes have jumbled together. I'm not sure what changed in the formatting to just be one big blob. So we're just going to roll with the Holy Spirit here on this. Um, Thank you, Lord. Thank you for... I just want to pause right now, Lord. I just thank you that even in me telling these stories... This is how we overcame by, overcome by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of our testimony. I testify to your healing power in this moment. I thank you that that soundly defeats the enemy. And he winces at the stories of true healing. Four years ago, I... Um, yes, thank you. Four plus years ago, it was a normal Sunday, uh, summer morning. I said, I heard my daughter come to the kitchen. I said, good morning, Kayla our oldest daughter, and she said, good morning, Dad. It was my Sabbath. I went in the woods to be with the Lord. I came back, and uh, I'll never see her again in this life. There was an automobile accident, 16 years old. She has her temporary permit, was out driving with my mom and dad, and uh, she didn't make it. My mom and dad were flown by helicopter to a hospital. They made it, and... As you can imagine, this is a whole different category of loss and pain. But I I have to tell you that it's hard to talk about this because the healing has been so real. I'm going to cry now, not from the pain, but from the joy. My heart lives again. I didn't think it could. I thought about it. The pain was so real. I just thought like a whole, my chest is carved open. My heart's been removed. Remember that, remember that, that pulsating heart that had a cancerous tumor of fear that was gone? You know what grew there? Kayla grew there. And then she was gone. 
And yet the Lord, I stand here before you as you, some of you know, you have a scar, but you touch it and it doesn't hurt anymore. It's not to say there aren't moments, but it's not like it was. The healing of Jesus is so real and so powerful. And some of the ways that played out. I mean, I remember in the early days, I mean, even just the first night, I mean, trying to wrap my head around, this is my life. This is not the family that I'm going to comfort. And uh, on the way to the hospital, my wife had gone to the impromptu prayer gathering at our, at our church. I went to the hospital to check with my parents in intensive care in the emergency room. And I just started writing things in my phone. God is great. God is greater. We... Um, um, you know what I'm going to do, Robert? If it's okay, guys, I'm going to unplug this since you all have this. I want to read specifically the things that the Lord put upon me to begin writing, the truths that I began to claim. God is great. God is greater. The enemy hates us and wants to swallow us up but we have hope. We will not fear. We will not give way to despair. We will not blame. We will trust and forgive. God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in times of trouble. God will be glorified. To live is Christ. To die is gain. Over and over, we just started clinging to those things, but it was a battle. Bloody knuckle street fight for real. I go home to my bed at night. How do you sleep? The night after you learn your daughter's no longer going to be seen in this life with you. Oh, she loved Jesus. So we knew that day would come. But how do you keep on living here? I buried my head in my pillow. I said, I cried out two things. No! I love you, Lord. I love you. No! I love you. That's what I remember. But I can't conjure up the pain anymore. I remember in the first early days, the IVs, the word of God and worship. I couldn't go five minutes without hearing worship before feeling like the chasm was opening beneath me and I was sinking down in. The Lord is my strength and my shield and my heart trusts him and he helps me. My heart sings for joy and with my mouth I praise him. The words of my daughter written in her journal over and over in the five, six, seven days before she died. I clung to those words and they brought healing to me. I remember digging the hole in the yard for the ashes that would be the tree that she would grow, that, that you know, that her ashes, the tree would grow out of. And I remember with each shovel full and shoveling, how is this possible that I'm digging my daughter's grave? I'm choosing to praise the Lord and he's healing me. With each of the 20-some people we baptized at her memorial service, the healing was just flowing into my life. But that doesn't mean the grieving journey is a quick and easy instantaneous path. The Lord told me, denial and distraction will delay my deliverance. Um, There's an incredible author, Jerry Sitzer, who wrote A Grace Disguised. Lost his mom, his wife, and a daughter in a drunk driving accident. Jerry said, the fastest way to the light of dawn is not to run westward chasing the setting sun, but to plunge headlong 
into the darkness of the east to find the light of the dawn. And so lament became an important path to the healing. But lament is not an excuse to hold on to the pain. Lament is a gift to get it out. But lament alone will not help you grieve with hope. Lament must be coupled with clinging to and declaring truth, the truth of God's word, the promises of God's word. And so in my life, I'm learning and experiencing this healing power. Two summers ago, I was plagued again with something different, numbness. All of the traditional things I had been doing weren't working anymore. And I'll tell you what, numbness is worse than pain because you can't feel anything. You can't feel joy. I experienced pain, but I discovered that pain and joy are not inversely tethered. That if you experience this much pain, you, you're down here. You, they're, they're, they're actually independent. And the greater the pain, the greater the grace. If you worship longer and louder than the pain, that is joy. That's the, that's the surplus. And so I discovered this, but when you feel numb, you don't feel any joy. It was, it was awful. And uh, Robert was the one who said, sounds like you, you've got depression. Robert's a good friend. He's here with me. And um, it sounds like you, you know, you've got some signs of depression. And I was like, you know, I think I need to see a counselor. I know inner healing prayer. I know deliverance. I know lament. I know claiming the truth. I know my identity in Christ. But all of those familiar tools aren't doing the same things they used to do. And so I went to see a counselor. He, uh, he helped me look at some issues in my marriage. He said, there's seven forms of lying. Withholding is one of them. I was like, whoa, I didn't, I had to dress some stuff with my wife, with Julie. He also said, I want you to work on mindfulness. Mindfulness. I don't remember reading that in the Bible. Um, but he said, we need to work on mindfulness. Not too long later, maybe like two weeks later, a good friend, mentor, called me and he said, what's going on? And I said, I feel nothing. And it makes me not want to live. And he said, do you have any bitterness? Do you have any resentment? No, I don't, I don't think I'm harboring any bitterness. He said, any self-pity? I feel like she's fading. It's been years now. And it's like she's slipping through my fingers. And I feel like if I don't hold on to self-pity, I'm going to forget her like I never really loved her. And he said, all right, right now, you need to declare and decree. You will never stop loving her, and you will never forget her. He said, but first, you've got to get rid of satanic self-pity. And so right then and there, he led me in a simple prayer. And these are the basic principles of inner healing prayer. Confession, repentance, renouncing, rebuking, and claiming. And that's what we did. Uh, there's some links in the thing. You can, you can find some of this there. And so in that moment, Lord, I confess self-pity in my life. I repent of self-pity in my life. I renounce the enemy's attempt to keep me trapped in this apathy that makes me not want to live because of self-pity. And I rebuke him in Jesus' name. And I claim, Lord, your genuine love and compassion. And I declare and create, I will never stop loving Kayla and I will never forget her. Nothing changed. There was no instantaneous transformation. But about three days later, Julie and I were in the kitchen, and she put the glasses where I know I don't like her to put the glasses. I was like, that's, that's really frustrating. I was like, 
I can feel again, you know, and we're just hugging each other. Something did happen. I just didn't instantly feel it. Self-pity was fueling my my thing. And so this is some of the grieving journey that I'm not going to say I have been on and as if it's not over. It's going to continue, right? And so we continue to find the healing journey. Everybody, if this is a continuum from extreme ultimate brokenness way out there to the perfection and the wholeness of God and Jesus over here. Guess what? It's a spectrum. And everybody's born onto this spectrum at some point. And it's not just your family of origin that you're born into. It's spiritual genetics, DNA, generational blessings and curses that could go back, you know, centuries and millennia even. Think about this. If scripture is true about generational blessings and curses, you don't, you're not born with a blank deck. You're inheriting something. And I'll tell you what, life and the devil are taking you that way. But God and Jesus are trying to take you this way to greater wholeness. And so the journey of inner healing as a disciple who is becoming more like Jesus is a journey in this direction. Incrementally, sometimes with huge leaps in this direction. But ultimately, there's always going to be a gap. And that's the day when Jesus comes back, the great resurrection, the great restoration, even our gap, even you in your struggle and your battle. You might be battling with this for the rest of your days on this life, but there will come a day when the gap will be gone and you will be whole and complete. But there's measurable progress in this life. That's what Jesus promised. That's what Jesus gives. Why is inner healing needed? Come on. Do we need to ask this question? No. I don't even want to talk about this because it's wrecking and robbing us. It's stealing. It's killing, destroying. It's it's ruining witness. It's messing people up. It's turning them off from Jesus. But it's just robbing us of our birthright as children of God. We're meant to be more whole and we can be more whole. So what is inner healing? Um, You know... The definition of a disciple we use in Renew is a follower of Jesus. If you could just use one word of a disciple, follower would be my recommendation. But if you can expand that, it's a follower of Jesus who is being changed, present progressive tense here, that we're in the process of being changed and who turns around and helps others follow Jesus and be changed. And so this is a journey to increasing wholeness. There are some aspects of disciple making that get neglected. For some people, it's the multiplication that disciple making is all about discipleship, which is often growing in knowledge of the Bible. And they miss the fact that this is meant to multiply and reproduce. But a lot of times it's the deeper transformation, identity in Christ, deliverance, and healing. And so I want to focus on the healing side of this. And I'm going to specifically, let's give a definition of inner healing. You know, there's, if you, I grabbed a couple books here. If you were to go and pull all of the books on disciple-making from the shelves, the ones written by the amazing speakers at this event that have shaped my life in such positive ways, and you go to the table of contents and you'd look for healing or inner healing or even deliverance in them, you're, you're not going to find it in a lot of them. They're neglected aspects of Jesus' ministry. There are a few Douglas Bolzer, Light Up the Dark, Restoring Healing and Deliverance to Disciple-Making. Jonathan Lee Shu Chiang from Taiwan wrote his doctoral dissertation on the importance of inner healing and deliverance for effective discipleship, a working model for the local church. These are both new. 
This is something God is doing in this day, bringing back and returning and restoring the importance of his healing ministry in the disciple-making process. What is inner healing? Healing of emotional wounds, traumas, or brokenness of heart and soul. A process of becoming more whole, more wholehearted, renewed and restored to the image of Jesus, our God-given image, the image, the, you know, our created image, being in the image of God. It often includes identifying and addressing lies, negative beliefs, thought patterns, behaviors, frequently rooted in past experiences. And it may involve all different things, prayer and counseling and other spiritual practices. My story and all those different types of things are just different expressions and forms of inner healing. Not a silver bullet. There's not a one-size-fits-all, and there's not a right-wrong here necessarily. How is it different from soul care? Soul care is the general uh, overarching, maybe, category of our spiritual well-being and wholeness. How is it different from deliverance? Deliverance is specifically dealing with demonic spiritual powers, and that is often more instantaneous. But the inner healing is often more of a process. But those two frequently are interconnected from my experience and from what Scripture says. What is the biblical basis of inner healing? I'm actually going to skip that. And this may seem like, why is he skipping that? Because the Scriptures are there. If you're questioning this, go back and study it on your own. I would just say, look at Jesus. Look at the lives. I mean, even just Anthony's talk that he just gave for us who are here at this conference. I mean, Anthony just did a was testimony. The Bible's littered with the was testimonies of people who were redeemed. When Jesus came and he said, I'm here to fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah, it was to heal the brokenhearted and then to use those people to be the builders of the broken walls. And so this played out with the woman at the well who turned around and was not just... I mean, she didn't just experience like a physical healing. She experienced a psychological healing that caused her to have no shame anymore. To go back in town and say, come meet the man who knew all the men I've been with. Like, so we could go on and on. There, there's, there's a bunch of examples there. Why doesn't disciple-making feature in inner healing more? Our rational, cognitive, behavioral Christianity, that worldview. But you know what? Let's be honest. Pride. Who, who here needs inner healing? What? Yeah, you guys get it because you're here. But if we were to ask a lot of people, they'd be like, oh, you know, I'm, I think I'm pretty good. Meanwhile, there's a festering rage that's you're an overly sensitive person that someone touches on something and you overreact. Why? There's something there. There's something under the surface. I think charismatic phobia is one reason. Inner healing has emerged in churches that have embraced and, 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 and properly elevated the role of the Holy Spirit in the often neglected trinity of Father-Son Bible. And so in those circles, because of our concern and hesitancy, we've kind of kept it at arm's length, some of us. And yet, if we're going to be biblical people, we've actually got to acknowledge the importance of healing. Binds up the brokenhearted. Could it be more clear? You know. But I'll say that the most objections, I think, are methodology. And um, I think it's the method that is concerned. You're not elevating scripture enough. You're using visualization techniques as if imagination is bad, as if Jesus didn't tell stories himself to get us to envision things. And so those are some of the, the things. I like Douglas Bolzer's um, 
criteria to use to evaluate methods. Sozo prayers. Anybody know a sozo prayer? People are concerned. Got questions. Loves to, to kind of throw bombs and throw attacks and jabs at anything that's associated with charismatic stuff. And so they throw out this, you know, look up inner healing and got questions. And it's immediately hesitant. Oh, this is dangerous. We got to be careful. Oh, yeah, Jesus did come to bring inner healing. But it's the methods we're concerned about. So here, what about this? Does it represent Christ well? By the way, in spiritual warfare, it's not the Bible that the enemy can't resist. He loves to take it and twist it. He'll put lies inside of truths, you know what I mean? It's Jesus is Lord, that the demons cannot confess Jesus is Lord. They can use scripture and twist it, but they can't confess Jesus is Lord. So does it represent Christ well? Does it acknowledge the authority of those who are in Christ and have Christ in them? Does it avoid manipulation, trauma, and shame? Does it provide a structure, not a straitjacket? Does it focus on and glorify Christ, leading people to greater fullness in Christ? And so I've I've heard people say that this is the method. I've been exposed to a lot of different methods of inner healing. And in just a second, we'll go through the list of different ways to integrate inner healing from a traditional programmatic perspective as well as a relational disciple-making perspective. I've learned principles that play out in all of these different approaches. And if I had to boil them down, I'll give them to you. Identity in Christ, confession and repentance, renouncing and rebuking, claiming truth. Those are kind of the common elements. The visualization of Jesus in the broken moments and the pain is a powerful psychological impact. It's, it's changed me forever, and I could just give countless stories of it. And so for people who are hesitant um, and worried or anxious about that, I would just say again, I know Jesus who told a lot of stories to get us to imagine. So why, where in the Bible does it say that imagining and envisioning things is wrong if it is superseded by, grounded in, and conforms to the truth of Scripture? Does that make sense? There is a legitimate concern with saying, uh, Jesus, what's the lie? Uh, where this, and, and what's the truth? And then like to not submit that to the teaching and clear teaching of Scripture. So yeah, for sure, that would not be something we would advise. The other concern is, oh, we don't want to have people focus on the problem and the pain. And I get that, right? At the same time, does 20 minutes of going back to the painful moment when you were abused or raped or mistreated or that coworker who was supposed to respect you undermined you that forever it's just been under your skin and now you're always just so quick and every time you think of him, you want to, you know, think bad thoughts. Does 20 minutes of going back there, feeling it again, so that the lies could be surfaced and the truth could be applied so that you can be free from it? Is that called prolonged exposure on the pain and the problem? To me, that sounds like awesome. Let's do it. Let's take the time to go back so that we can go forward. I'm going to have Robert um, come on up. So Robert is on staff with us at LifeSpring, and uh, he's uh, trained as a clinical counselor. Uh, Robert and I have been talking about how do we integrate this at LifeSpring in our church. And your church is different. This is the practical stuff. You've heard the stories. You've heard my testimony um, about the reality of this. We've taken a quick glimpse, really, really quick glimpse at what it is and what Scripture says. Um, All right, Robert, how do we take 
inner healing and bring it into a local church. I want you to talk about some of the programmatic applications. I just want to say, first of all, if you wrote down on a piece of paper right now your church's vision, mission, strategy, core values, basic beliefs, if you literally, or your organization, if if you wrote it out now, where is healing and restoration reflected there? Is healing and restoration reflected there? May I remind you of Jesus who came to proclaim the good news to the poor, to heal and to free captives. Our vision statement is joining God in restoring a broken world. That's the good news. And so we have chosen to weave in our definition of a disciple as a follower of Jesus who is being changed. We talk about growing in four directions, up in relationship with God, with in relationship to other people, out in mission, and a lot of churches just do three, up, and they say in and out, or up with and out. We added a fourth, and we call it the in dimension of how he's giving us transformation at the deepest level, character, wholeness, freedom, healing. And so it's, it's explicit in our definition of a disciple and in, it's applied in our training materials, this growth in wholeness. And so I would say, if you don't have the philosophical underpinnings of a healing ministry in your church or your ministry's explicit written verbiage, that's one of the ways that we integrate inner healing into the disciple-making process. We talk about it. We elevate it to its rightful place and its importance as a part of the ministry of Jesus. So when it comes to program approaches, Robert, what, uh, what kinds of things have we been working on or have you seen that could be helpful for others? Well, I'm actually I'm going to challenge programs, and we didn't work through this beforehand, so um, it'll just be how it goes. But I, I studied marriage and family therapy, and uh, two things about the brain, and just real brief, that have kind of blown my mind. One, your brain develops top or, or bottom up, right? That's how it develops over time. And so go like this. This is, this is your brain, okay? This is your brain stem. This controls your breathing, your swallowing, all your automatic functions. You don't think about this. You know, you, now put your thumb in right here. This is your midbrain. This has a lot of the areas of your brain that process emotions. This is your fight or flight response. This is the things that, that happen because you have this surge of emotional energy that just compels you to do something. And this is developing uh, right, right at the time you're born. And this continues to develop throughout your whole life. And then if you close the lid, this is your upper brain. This is where you're really able to think. You're able to have impulse control. You're able to kind of kind of think about those things that are going on underneath the hood. And so it's, it's a helpful picture. And that top brain doesn't start developing till like six at the earliest. And seven, eight, nine, you know, it, it, it just keeps going. And the issue is this part of your brain has been working and developing since you were born. And so if you go through things, relational problems and traumas like that, it is being lodged and stored right there in your brain. And then we, you know, have this upper part of our brain develop and we get into adulthood and people say, well, just, just think about it different. Just outthink it. Well, that's really hard to do when this has been around a lot longer. And a lot of your trauma is literally it's stored throughout your body. Like this is what, what we know about. So even brain development, like this is, this takes something more than just outthinking your relational problems. The second thing about the brain is it's very relational. It's social. You cannot function and survive as an infant if you're just left alone. You know, even if you're fed and put into isolation and and never talked to, never held, like you're not going to develop 
properly. And so when you, when you merge this with the Bible, this is what blew me away about marriage and family therapy and about, and about thinking about relationships is God is triune, right? Like God exists in relationship. And so relationships are so, so valuable and important. And, and the application for churches and for ministries and, and programs is we have to be highly, highly relational. We have to create a lot of on-ramps for people to be in these vulnerable and authentic relationships where we're able to be real. And so we um, are able to offer things like Celebrate Recovery, if you're familiar with that ministry, and ministries like Grief Share. We're able to promote counseling because it's things that get multiple people in a room or or one-on-one and you're able to process out loud what's been going on in your life and you're able to invite God then in to relate to you as you're doing that and he can bring he can bring healing how many of you guys teach or preach at your church anyone here so some um and and I do too and and this is this is such a big deal as teachers because if you come into pastoral ministry with a lot of heart wounds a lot of relational uh, problems that have led you to, you know, be afraid of people or feel like you have to impress people. A lot of times what can happen, and it's happened to me, is you step up on stage thinking, I've got to get it right. I can't mess up. I've got to say it right. Or, oh, that felt good. Now I, now I need everyone else's validation. And if anyone says that was the worst sermon ever or that wasn't your best, you know, you're gutted for the rest of the day. And it's like, what, what is the problem here? If we're not healthy emotionally, if we don't have this, this whole healed self in light of who Jesus is and what he has done, then even, even our teaching and our preaching can go, go off and, and become problematic. If we're not being healed inwardly, when we read the Bible, we pay attention to the content, we think about Jesus intellectually, but we don't pay attention to the emotional undertones of the story. And so if you're, if you're teaching, if you're preaching, if you're not, like you be, be part of the change in your church to bring authenticity. You know, we're not trying to just build up disciples who go and become big name speakers at some conference or are up on stage saying polished words and smooth rhetoric. Like that's, that's not the goal. We want, we want people like Paul who says, I, I teach Christ crucified. And that's the power of my message. It's, it's what God has done in me, my own birth and death and resurrection in light of Jesus. And so th- those are some things. Leadership development, we were working. It's not, uh, not definitely perfect for us right now, but we're trying to work with leaders on how can we create, um, I don't even know what to call it. Uh, are you familiar with Pete Scazzaro? Anyone? Yeah, I'd highly recommend him if you're not. Pete Scazzaro, is he in our resources on there? He, he's, just, he's connected to Renew. In the, yeah. Uh, there's info in your, in your um, yeah. handout. Yeah. So he wrote Emotionally Healthy Discipleship. It's his most recent book. And we took the content of that book and we basically downloaded it into an online learning platform called Thinkific. Um, not like not like plagiarism or not violating copyright or anything, but we turned it into an eight-week catalyst. And so we're inviting our leaders to go through this catalyst, work through their own stories, their own family of origin, their own history and relational problems that, that they've faced, and how does Jesus merge into that and bring healing. So there's even like leadership development that's so important to not just equip people with good disciple-making tactics, but also to do it in a, in a way where what they reproduce will be healthy and whole. And so besides how we preach and teach and model this mm-hmm. and how we work with leaders to help them develop their own wholeness, what are some programmatic approaches churches could use to create uh, contexts of inner healing? 
like the grief share CR. Yeah. Um, you want me to just talk about yeah. more how? So Celebrate Recovery is a ministry that is kind of streamlined. It's offered in a lot of places. I don't know how you would go about starting one other than get the curriculum and go through the training. It's all online based at this point. Um, but Celebrate Recovery, it kind of has a stigma of being for people in uh, recovery from drug or alcohol addiction. But really their big slogan is, is any hurt, habit, or hang up. And so they have open groups where you come and you worship and you're taught kind of principles for living this this recovery lifestyle, but they also have closed groups where you can get in a more intimate setting and talk about uh, whether it's anxiety or depression or sexual addiction or alcohol or you know whatever it is, they have those opportunities. Uh, Grief Share is is a whole curriculum. It's a 13-week um, curriculum, and it's best led by people who have gone through loss. It's designed specifically for loss of a loved one, uh, and the content is good, but what's more than that is you get a lot of people in the same room that have gone through these these awful losses, um, and, and they can network and meet each other and connect, and so those are just two of the ones that we found yep. very helpful. And obviously not to mention yep. counseling. I want to say there are other things beyond programs and classes the life-on-life relational disciple-making, this is the most important category and means or mechanism for inner healing. Personally experiencing it, walking in it, and then helping others. And so on your um, handout, there's a list of different, and it's so simple. It's, Devin, when you and I are talking, it's saying, how's your soul? How is Devin? I I know you just told me about all the stuff going on in your life. But how are you handling that? That's a pathway to inner healing. It's going deeper to the soul level um, to become more wholehearted. Um, just there's tools, there's weapons that can be used. We use a walking in freedom uh, material. And I'm looking around. I see Michelle. I know there are others here. Um, Chad Harrington in the backs with him publications. You guys produce an amazing article that linked to the First Freedoms book. Um, these are resources that are included We have a restorative prayer ministry where we sit down with people to bring the healing and the freedom of Jesus to bear. Um, There's a link to to that in there. These are all different applications that are more personal. Walk with someone, not attend a class. And here's the thing about our restorative prayer ministry, where we go back to the past to bring the freedom so we can go forward into the future. It doesn't go 12 weeks and then you're done. It goes 12 weeks until you're done. For one year plus prior to Kayla's early graduation to go be with the Lord, my wife had been meeting with a mentor weekly to pray through every last painful moment in her life. And when I got the call, I collapsed. And she knelt and she heard the Lord say, it's time. I've prepared you for this. She had the tools she needed to handle the catastrophic loss. Now, please understand, it didn't make it easy, and it didn't make it quick, but we were equipped. You, too, can be equipped to walk in progressively improving freedom and healing with Jesus. He is your guide. He is the source of that healing. And as you walk on that journey, you can help others do the same. Let's end with a moment of pause and prayer because our time is up. Lord, I thank you and we bless you that who we are is not who we will be and it's not who we were. 
that you've changed our essential fundamental nature and identity through what you've done on the cross. And so while the enemy reminds us of our past, we remind him of what happened before that. We remind him of the cross and the empty tomb. We also thank you, Lord, that we're on this journey to greater and greater wholeness, and the day will come when we won't have to struggle or fight for it anymore. Show us our next steps. Activate greater faith. Lead us to the right resources so that we could not only receive the blessing of your healing, but we could be blessing bearers to and with others. And it's all for the sake of your glorious and holy name. You are the healer, and we love you, Jesus. Amen. We really hope that Jeff's content and message today blessed you and was great to hear and gave you spiritual encouragement and hopefully more tips on inner healing and what that looks like for leaders and pastors in the church world. We just invite you to come back next week. Join us again. We're going to have another great track session for you then.